men of force and forceful language. Today we're talking about the Siloviki and that Biden quote. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. All my patrons are, of course, loved and esteemed, but some, it has to be acknowledged, are loved and esteemed more than others. One of my oligarchs, the highest level, the highest tier, asks that I talk about the current leadership, the top leadership, of the main security institutions within Russia. And on this podcast, as in life, what oligarchs want, oligarchs get. So that's what I will be doing. And rather than just making this purely a little sort of catalogue of bios or whatever, I'm also going to be trying to talk about where they stand, what they mean, what impact they have in the system, and also how they interact with each other. And we'll also be touching on the issue of succession, which is actually becoming an increasingly burning topic, given the ages of many of them. And it's worth remembering, the mandatory retirement age for Russian officials is 70 doesn't count, of course, if you're a president, especially a president who just changed the constitution to allow yourself to, in theory, remain in office until you're 84. Uh, there's ways round it also for advisory personnel. I mean, if we look at, for example, Yuri Ushakov, who is the presidential aide and advisor on foreign affairs, uh, he is, I think, I think it's 74 now. And there are also other ways you can sort of delay and fudge things, but essentially 70 is the uh, end point of people's executive careers. So that's something to be bearing in mind. And particularly with the first figure that I'll be looking at, who is in some ways the, the godfather brooding over the whole system, and that is Nikolai Patrushev, Secretary of the Security Council. And as I said in a previous podcast, and I'll leave a link in the programme notes, for me, quite possibly the scariest man in all Russia. He's not just a hawk, he is a hawk's hawk. And in particular, I think why he's so important is that his position has allowed him to more or less become the kind of informal national security advisor to Putin. Remember, the Russian system doesn't actually have a formal national security advisor. So he's the person who gets to, in some ways, paint the picture of the world to which Putin responds. He's also the chief gatekeeper on security matters. I mean, obviously, you know, there are all kinds of other people who have access to the president. Um, but nonetheless, you know, Patrushev, and particularly Patrushev's secretariat within the Security Council, his own sort of personal bureaucracy, that because he's been around so long has very much been sort of shaped in his image, they do get to decide a lot of the, the tedious but nonetheless absolutely crucial stuff in, within bureaucracies, which is, in other words, paper flow. And it probably still is paper rather than email flow, given that, that Putin is something of, of a Luddite. So again, which, which reports get to him? How are they framed? How have they been edited? Um, all that kind of thing goes through Patrushev. And as well as being Putin's advisor and as well as being his gatekeeper, 
Nikolai Patrushev is also Putin's enforcer. Enforcer in the sense that uh, the Security Council is meant to be the institution that helps coordinate all security-related policy. And remember, when it comes to Russia, almost everything, it feels, can be considered to be security. And certainly we've seen a securitization of more and more elements of policy. And that, by definition, increases the remit of Patrushev and his people. And his role is in many ways to make sure that people stay in line, that the inevitable and constant interagency and interdepartmental disputes, which are actually part of the system rather than a problem, because they're actually part of the ways in which the Kremlin keeps all these various rapacious and often very dangerous institutions in line, is precisely by pitching them against each other up to a point, up to the point where it becomes too dysfunctional. And that's when Patrushev gets really to draw the line, you know, speaking with the authority of the president behind him. So look, these are all absolutely crucial roles, and it's important to stress them because Patrushev is 69. In other words, he's coming up to that magical end date of 70. Now, given that he's not actually in an executive role, in other words, he basically doesn't give orders. He could be considered to be essentially advisory personnel, and he could be kept on for longer. And certainly, you know, he seems vigorous, and perhaps more to the point... There doesn't seem to be any suggestions of succession planning. There doesn't seem to be any notion of someone coming up as as being uh, his understudy. The notions that the uh, relatively recently appointed deputy chair, that is to say one Dmitry Medvedev, would be in a position to step into his shoes, I would find very, very implausible. And frankly, I think most of the security apparatus would also find very, very implausible. So... I must admit the the impression I'm getting is that one way or the other now, Patrushev is going to be staying in place for a while longer. No one, of course, is truly indispensable, but I do feel that he is as indispensable to the boss as you get. And as I said, in the absence of any evidence of any kind of succession planning, it looks as if Putin plans to keep him on and he plans to stay. Now, who knows? But that, that's my sense. Who's the kind of the next most important figure? Well, I suppose it would have to be Sergei Shoigu, the defence minister, for all kinds of reasons. I mean, he's important simply because, you know, he has more men with guns than anyone else and bigger guns. But also important precisely because of his stature within the, the political system. Um, and it's a stature that is marked by official formal responsibilities, And it's also a stature that's marked by personal relationship with the boss. As we saw this past weekend um, when when they had their little faintly broke back mountain-y vibed weekend in Siberia of uh, all-terrain vehicle driving and eating al fresco. Though I have to say, eating al fresco at a table which was a nice little white tablecloth. One would almost think that there was a huge apparatus of presidential staff hovering out of camera shot to arrange everything to the president's convenience. But I'm sure that's being terribly cynical. And, you know, as as they went out to do their, their manly outdoors things, in, it has to be said, very natty little matching sheepskin outfits, what was being signalled was not just simply a, you know, a nice outdoorsy event and not just simply a reminder that Putin is hale and hearty and can walk up the steps to a plane without stumbling. 
And that's not my jibe. I mean, that's very much the way the kind of the Russians are framing it in light of uh, President Biden's repeated uh, stumblings. It's also a symbol of Shoigu's additional power, precisely as his relationship to the boss. Now, where is he? This is the interesting thing. It's always very difficult to know precisely where Shoigu stands genuinely. At the moment, he, he does the nationalist rhetoric very well. Because, again, that's part of his job. That's part of the ways he also uses it to signal his loyalty to the Putin line. But I can't help feeling that there is a rather pragmatic and slightly chameleon-like politician behind that. This is not a man, I think, who is motivated by a particular ideological zeal. Yes, he is a patriot. Yes, he believes in his country. But I don't think that really he's the sort of person who is going to push it, certainly not to the levels of the Patrushevs of this world. He's in a solid position. He doesn't seem to be showing at the moment any signs of wanting to move. But again, this has always been one of Shoigu's quite fascinating and baffling characteristics that he never seems to campaign for any kind of promotion. They just happen to him. And in part, it's precisely because he's seen as, as safe and competent and loyal and effective and all these other various things. So we'll just have to wait and see. I'm, I'm sure he is not unaware of the fact that people think of him as a future prime minister or even potentially president. I don't know, honestly, what his opinion is on whether he would want those. But given that he's 65, you know, he still has, has a few more years in him. But at the moment, he seems to be enjoying himself, being the military commander today, being the outdoorsman tomorrow. So Shoigu is, is basically in place for a while. Not so Alexander Bortnikov, who is the head of the Federal Security Service, because he's 69 as well. And come November, he almost certainly will leave, and I'll talk about succession in a moment. It's so hard to say anything about Bortnikov. He really is something of a... Of, I won't say a grey blur, because that's, I think, uh, you know, too disparaging. But certainly, one doesn't really get the sense of, of raw personality pulsing forth from him. He has been a very loyal uh, agent of Putin's. He is clearly a proxy of Patrushev, who was his predecessor in job, and essentially appointed him to his current position. And he's a hawk, absolutely. And he's a hawk both because of his institutional role as head of the FSB and also, I believe, out of conviction. But even so, even in this, he is, again, that, that slightly sort of paler retread of Patrushev. Um, you know, it's definitely much more low-fat, shall we say, than, than, than Patrushev. His political role is quite interesting because, you know, clearly the FSB is an extraordinarily powerful institution within Russia. And arguably, it's only going to become more so in the next few months and years as the Kremlin sort of builds up its defences and becomes more and more obsessed with the, the prospect of opposition, whether we're talking about Navalny's people or just generally the, the rising tide of general disaffection within the country. So in that respect, precisely because of its power, much of what Bortnikov has been doing has really about holding territory rather than expanding it. You know, he can't really empire build too much because, frankly, 
A, it would be pushed back because Putin doesn't want to make the FSB totally super dominant within the system. But also, in a way, the FSB's grabbed all the things it wants to grab, pretty much. So that's essentially sort of <laughs> Bortnikov's role, which is much more, again, as a defensive and um, passively conservative. And that also doesn't really give us much of a sense of who he is. On the other hand, obviously, who replaces him will be significant. Now, again, as I talked about in previous podcast, the man who definitely seems to have been tipped as the planned successor, Sergei Kovalyov, who is, I would suggest, both more hawkish, but certainly more aggressive and active. Now, his succession plans seem to have been slightly derailed by being caught in the sort of outer fringes of uh, the, the Golanov case when uh, a, an investigative journalist was uh, framed very clumsily on, on drugs charges. Um, ironically, that seemed to have done the job in a way that his you know, fairly well-documented close ties to organised crime doesn't seem to have been a problem, which, again, tells you a lot of things. So... The succession might have been botched or delayed. He has just been appointed to the position of first deputy director, um, but it might be regarded as just a little premature, nine months later, to be made full director. So we'll have to wait and see. There may be a a little stopgap figure put in. It may be that he's actually missed his chance, or it may be that they'll go ahead with it. I have to say that a Karolyov FSB is one that would bother me rather more in the sense that I think he would have much more to prove. Bortnikov ultimately didn't have much to prove because precisely he was confident in having the the support and the faith of both Patrushev and Putin. Korolev would have more to prove and that would make him probably be much more aggressive, much more eager to demonstrate his strengths. And that's, that's not a fun thought. Moving along through the various security and intelligence services, Let's go to the SVR, the Foreign Intelligence Service. Now, Sergei Narishkin, its director, um, you know, he has a spook background, but he essentially he's not, shall we say, a spook by vocation. This is his current position, but there was no real evidence that either it was one that he was absolutely desperate to hold, nor that he regarded it as the, the culmination and pinnacle of his career. Um, He is, of course, necessarily hawkish, but to be honest, I think he's something of a a bellwether. He's hawkish because that's where it's safe to be at the moment, and that's what gets you the approbation from above and the column inches from below. Again, that doesn't really make any difference on one one level, because it it means that he will continue to to say say the right things, but again, I think it tells you something more about the fact that this is essentially a, a political animal rather than an ideological one. Now, for the last well, almost a year, he definitely has been uh, much, much more active and vocal, clearly trying to build a, a far higher political profile. And he's been using not just his position as director of the SVR for that, but also the fact that he's head of the Russian Historical Society, which, again, might sound slightly perverse to a Western audience because... Um, you know, I, I don't really know who, who the heads of historical societies are in the UK, but certainly that, that's not really usually regarded as a powerful political uh, location. But we have to remember that this is Russia, and particularly this is Putin's Russia, where there's a great drive to basically um, use history as a means of legitimising current policy. 
So actually, you know, that, that position matters, matters much more. So he's been using it. Now, it looks like his hopes of some kind of upward shift within the executive system um, are, are coming to nothing. Unless, for example, the current prime minister, Mikhail Mishustin, seriously messes up. For example, I don't think um, that, that Narishkin's uh, dreams of, of achieving that position can be uh, attained. But on the other hand, there are alternatives. Remember, again, he, we, we once again have the age factor, he is 68. But if he moves into either he can return to the state Duma, or as I think is perhaps a little bit more likely, he could become a senator in the Federation Council then he doesn't have to worry about the age factor. And then, of course, he has a wonderful podium from which to pontificate on matters political or historical to his heart's desire. So again, I think Narishkin himself is really thinking about his personal future. But the interesting thing is it matters much less than in other cases because actually the SVR is, a, I would suggest, a rather more technocratic institution. Um, the, the, the character, the personality, the interests of the director, I think, matter rather less to what it does. Um, the, the director is just simply the, the, the public face, the, the advocate, the person who gets you the budget and, and such like. They'll find someone else to replace Narishkin without any trouble. And I don't think it'll, he'll, his absence would really be noticed. Moving on, law enforcement. Well, the interior minister, Vladimir Kolokoltsev, he's essentially a professional. I mean, he, from time to time, pops up to say suitably sort of hardline things, because in a way, that's what he has to do. There's very little evidence that it's actually something that he particularly believes in. Nor do I want to kind of convey the impression that he's some kind of closet liberal, um, just waiting for, for, for the day when, when, when he can go out on pride parades or whatever. He's not. You know, he's basically a career cop, the career cop who's, who's risen to the absolute sort of you know, pinnacle of his profession. But the point is, as a result of that, he is also politically weak. And, or maybe to put it another way, his job is relatively politically weak. The real power is with the internal security services. If the interior minister's position was a more powerful one, then probably it wouldn't be Kolokoltsev who would be there. We would actually have some much more, uh, you know, red meat Putinite figure. Much the same is probably true of the prosecutor general. There we have Igor Krasnov, again, you know, a highly respected professional, who will will do what he has to do, and that means yes, of course, prosecuting Navalny and and his team. And every now and then saying the right things about how you know the West is trying to you know use lawfare against Russia and so forth. Basically, he is also someone who just wants to do his job. And really, as a result of that, he has relatively little political traction above. This is the depressing paradox. If you want to be in the room, if you want to actually have some influence on Putin. You have to make so many compromises or already hold the kind of paranoiac views that mean that once you get in the room, you're not going to be able to do any good. You're just going to be parroting the same kind of talk about Western Gibridnaya Voina and Navalny being a tool of the CIA 
and all the protesters actually being paid to come out, etc., etc. So, does that mean that none of the law enforcers really sort of matter at all? Well, there is one more that I think we have to consider who is rather different. Alexander Bastrykin, the head of the investigatory committee. Now, in some ways, again, does it really matter if he's a hawk by belief or necessity? It doesn't really. Because what he is, is a shark. A shark in the sense that, now, I've heard more recently that this might be a myth, but it's too good a metaphor not to use. That much like a shark, he has to keep swimming or else he drowns. Bastrykin is a man who managed to kind of rise really rather quickly, to an extent by, by screwing over the previous prosecutor general, Yuri Chaika. And he has no real allies. He has no real support base. He only survives by constantly demonstrating to the boss that he's useful and that he's essentially better than anyone else would be in that position. And that means, obviously, that he's at the moment very much pushing this um, campaign of prosecutions, persecutions, as well as prosecutions, frankly, against the opposition. Um, it, it's an increasingly vicious campaign, and frankly, over the next few months, it's going to get even more vicious. He's doing so in part to try and outflank Krasnov, not because I think he has anything, there's no personal bad blood there, but because his investigatory committee was wrenched from the Prosecutor General's office, and therefore there is an institutional rivalry there. But his main rivalry is with the FSB, which you know is the otherwise the, the primary arm of political persecution. And he was constantly pushed... And he's constantly failing. But the point is, again, I think his job, as far as Putin is concerned, is also in part to be that little pebble in the shoe of the FSB that stops it running too far. A pebble that Putin can always make bigger, if need be. He's not going to rise anywhere. I don't think... Well, I could be proven wrong, of course, with all of these. But my view is no. He's basically stuck. What he has to do is essentially stay in place. That, for him, is a constant triumph. Every day, week or month that he stays in office and the investigatory committee remains autonomous is actually a triumph for him. And he will do whatever he has to do to ensure that. And interestingly, much the same is true of Viktor Zolotov, the bloody-handed and bloody-minded head of the National Guard. So again, a man with no real allies, with perhaps the exception of Ramzan Kadyrov, and frankly, if Kadyrov is your best friend, then I can only feel sorry for you. And he's exceedingly regarded as an outsider within even Silovic, even security services. In part, this is about mistrust of the man, a sense that he is unpredictable, that he's excessively aggressive and ambitious, even for them. In part, it's simple snobbery. Um, you know, he is definitely not, shall we say, officer class. He, he, is, he is a tough man who really rose through the ranks and he has made no real efforts to smooth his rough edges and acquire a sort of bourgeois veneer. So, I mean, I think there is that sense that, that, that they regard him, I mean, I'll be honest, rightly, um, as a sort of vicious, feral individual rather than sort of one of them. But on the other hand, again, Putin trusts him. Ironically, probably the very fact that he is an outsider 
is one of the reasons why Putin trusts him, because he can be used as a counterweight to the others. Now, the National Guard and the Interior Ministry have to cooperate just for operational reasons, whether it's in terms of dealing with protests or, or other activities. But on the other hand, there is absolutely no love lost between Zolotov and Kolokoltsev, because when the National Guard was created, essentially that screwed over Kolokoltsev. Again, this is the interesting thing. These new institutions, like the Investigatory Committee, was taken out of the Prosecutor General's office. The National Guard was taken out or was created from elements that were taken out of the Interior Ministry. And Kolokoltsev just had to, to grin and bear it. So no, no great love lost there, but it doesn't really matter. But again, the real rivalry that matters is with the FSB, the Federal Security Service, because several times Zolotov has tried to expand his own power base at the expense of the FSB, trying to, for example, create um, an investigatory side to the National Guard's uh, activities, moving into, for example, policing of social media. And these are things that the FSB slapped him down with very hard, not at all successful. But nonetheless, this is where, again, this, this, is, this is the irony of the FSB's power. It means that essentially it already occupies all the various turfs that other agencies might want to take. So he will push and they will push back. But as I say, again, as with Mastrykin, uh, although you know Zolotov has from time to time floated the idea that he'd be willing to head the FSB, I, I think that's not a chance. Uh, or, I mean, he spent a little while as a deputy defence minister. You know, again, there had been sort of friends of Zolotov, I use that in quotation marks, um, have occasionally sort of quoted the idea that you know, he, he'd be a very good minister of defence or whatever. Again, in practice, I don't think he's going anywhere. It's just a question of remaining in place. Now, Zolotov, like Bastrykin, is 67. So he's got a few years, but, but only a few. And again, here we have a really interesting point about how the Russian system works. The technocrats, the people who are basically just good at their job, and that's what they do, they tend to be relatively young. I mean, Shoigu is absolutely the, the oldest, because he's more of a kind of political appointee at, at 65. But I mean, Kolokoltsev is 59, Krasnov, the prosecutor general, is 45. If you look at the others, who are all much more hawkish, I mean, they're basically in their late 60s. What does this mean? Well, first of all, it demonstrates a point that I uh, made previously, is that actually Putin doesn't trust easily. And when he does trust people, he basically tries to hold on to them as long as he possibly can. So it's, it's much more than this. It's about really a sort of a small circle of people. And also, they are very much his generation of people. Remember, Putin's 68. Um, these are people who went through the same kind of formative experiences. In some cases, these are people who were, you know, were, were classmates at university. I mean, although there's no real, there was never really a kind of a personal connection, but you know, Bustrykin and Putin did go through university, the same university studying law at Leningrad State University at the same time, for example. So, you know, again, people with whom he feels comfortable because they went through the same life experiences. The second point is, though, that... What's going to be interesting is what, is what happens? I mean, we have a whole slew of people who are absolutely crucial to the regime, 
who are very, very much Putin loyalists and who very much have also been driving this extremely confrontational policy towards the West. All of them coming up for retirement at pretty much the same time. So either we, or rather Russia, is going to have to get ready, get ready for a potential major reshuffle of the security apparatus and the rise of a new generation, or we will see desperate fudges taking attempts to try and hold on to the old guard for a little bit longer. Either way, it's going to say something, first of all, about Putin's confidence level, and secondly, about which way the state's going to be going. And although in broad terms, I'm actually a believer that as a new political generation rises in Russia, it's going to lead to a less confrontational relationship with the West, simply because a more pragmatic generation sees that actually a notion of Russia's place in the world isn't as useful to them personally as guaranteed access to Western banks, Western holiday resorts, Western universities and Western consumer goods. But on the other hand, in this much more specific realm, if, if, if Karolyov is anything to go by, the kind of people who Putin is going to be looking to replace his current Praetorians are people who are very much desperate to catch his eye by precisely being hard men by the people he can rely on to do whatever it takes. And in this respect, I mean, Bastrykin and Zolotov, in some ways, were, were harbingers of that. We might well get a whole new generation of Bastrykins and Zolotovs rising to the fore. People who have no particular backstory with the boss, and therefore instead have to act in a particularly aggressive, imaginative and forceful way, precisely to demonstrate their bona fides. And that, I will confess, is not a particularly uplifting thought. So let's have a break and then let me see if I can actually pull something rather more optimistic out of the admittedly controversial words of President Joe Biden when he agreed that with the proposal that Putin was a killer. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. So, last week... Last Wednesday, 17th of March, Joe Biden called Vladimir Putin a killer. Well, not quite, actually. It's more that in his interview with George Stephanopoulos, he was presented with the assertion, would he agree with the fact that Putin was a killer? And with a slight hesitation, he did. Still, this is not the kind of language which we're used to seeing heads of state use to each other. So it's worth just dwelling a little on what it might mean as well as what the reaction was in Russia. Now, despite the fact that a lot of the uh, immediate press headlines in the West were about Russian fury and everything else, actually it was more textured and more subtle than that. And Putin himself... He didn't really take it on. He sort of just simply said, effectively, it takes one to know one. Um, and more or less implied that it's actually that uh, 
it was the fact that uh, America being the sort of murderous mavericks of the world stage, you know, inevitably Biden would, would be thinking in these terms. But essentially he downplayed it. He could have been much, much more um, genuinely or artificially outraged about it, but he didn't. He didn't want to give it that kind of, of status, quite frankly. And from his point of view, although I don't think there is a sort of a massive rally round the flag impact, but the very fact that, that Biden is talking about him does generally sort of support this notion of Russia and Putin as being, you know, actors on the world stage of note. Of course, I mean, that said, there was a lot of sound and fury within the, uh, the political class and particularly that rather sort of toxic commentariat who, unfortunately, I mean, they seem to compete with each other in rhetorical arms races to come up with, with more extreme language to use. And there is a basically a, a counterpart in the West that gleefully leaps on them and more or less regards that as somehow an expression of the, the Kremlin's views being channeled. So there, there was all kinds of things about this, about talking about how Biden was being warlike, was being insulting, um, or that he was essentially demonstrating his senility, or that in fact he didn't really believe it, but he had to say that because of the uh, bloodthirsty Democrat Party that essentially hates Russia so much it just simply wants any opportunity to, to do it down all this kind of stuff but look I, I don't necessarily think this was something that the Kremlin orchestrated nor do I think the Kremlin had a problem with it it's this is the sort of the froth that emerges that self-generates from within the Russian political system and we really don't need to give it too much uh, attention and credit or if we do it's a big mistake because it both empowers them, makes them feel that actually they're more important than they really are, and also leads to us thoroughly misunderstanding what's going on. And if we look, for example, at the withdrawal of the Russian ambassador Antonov from, from DC for consultations, well, again, I mean, withdrawal for consultations is just a, a temporary thing. It's in part precisely to have those kind of face-to-face you know, -face conversations about the way forward that can't necessarily be done over remote communications. But it was also, I think, uh, a signal. It was a signal to DC that was saying, look, at the moment we don't regard this as, as being important, we don't re regard this as being serious, but do take us seriously. We will not stand by and be used as your punch bag if you start moving into anything more dramatic, because this is the point. Actually, the Russians were being quite stoic about it because they're waiting to see what's going to happen. I mean, so far, this is the interesting thing, that uh, before the elections, we had you know, a, a lot of very strong language coming from, from Biden and his team. And of course, you know, they are the Democrat candidates and, uh, and the Democrats were the ones who, as far as they're concerned, they're happy to assume that somehow Putin had stolen the 2016 election from them. Since he's been in power, actually, though, it's, it's been much, much more pragmatic. We've seen talk about strategic arms uh, re reductions. We have seen clear attempts to find uh, pragmatic common ground on issues ranging from Iran to climate change to the Arctic. And more than anything else, I would say, we have seen the evidence that this White House 
would really rather not waste bandwidth, waste time and attention on Russia when there are much, much more important things around, ranging from the sort of very uh, impressive, if obviously sort of belated, response to the pandemic through to dealing with China and uh, rebuilding relations with Europe, etc., etc. In that context, Russia really isn't that important. And certainly the, the rather lukewarm initial sanctions response to the Navalny arrest also demonstrated that. But nonetheless, there is this clear sense that something is coming, and therefore the Russians will want to see what that something will be. So, look, Biden did not use diplomatic language. And particularly when it's a head of state talking about another head of state, really these people become, I would say, metaphors for their country. Whatever you may think about uh, the Queen of England's dress sense. If we had the American president saying that Her Majesty looked rather dowdy, this would understandably be treated not as a single sort of personal fashion sense comment, but as an insult to the people of Britain. So, you know, we have to understand that, that actually this is unusual. However, I can't help but feel that in part it's going to become increasingly usual. I think the whole notion of, of diplomatic language is changing. And in part, it's precisely whereas once upon a time, everything was carefully scripted and run through diplomats looking to think of what they thought of the language and such like. We now much more have a, a sense that polit political leaders in the West and to an extent also in, in other countries, but such as Russia, but certainly in the West, they're meant to speak much more quote unquote real. This is more Oprah, less long telegram. So I think, unfortunately, we also have to accept the extent to which we're probably going to be seeing this kind of language increasingly being used normally and just get used to it. But there's also a much, much more important point about this kind of tough language. On the one hand, this could absolutely be a prelude to tougher US action. And certainly that is what Biden was implying. I mean, he, he said Putin is going to pay a price and that what it was, well, you'll, you'll see shortly. So it could be that, you know, for a variety of actions, whether we're talking about uh, hacking to the, the recent report from the Director of National Intelligence that asserted that Russia was involved in trying to subvert America in the context of the most recent uh, presidential elections. Generally speaking, it could well be that there is something bigger coming, coming down the pike. But, well, you'll see shortly. Sometimes tough language can actually be a substitute for action. Biden is an experienced professional. If he hadn't wanted to answer that question, he wouldn't have answered it. He would have found all kind of ways around it. I don't think that's the right way of talking here and now, or whatever. No, he chose to answer it. So this could actually be a substitute for tough action, a way of satisfying you know, not just the, the Democrat Party, but also the more hawkish constituencies elsewhere in, in, in the West, to show that he's not at all sympathetic towards Putin, that he's on top of this, that this is a real challenge, and therefore that they won't kick up too much of a fuss if and when actual results and sanctions prove to be rather less impressive than they were hoping for. 
You'll see shortly. This doesn't really sound like Hamlet's Revenge Shall Have No Bounds. It's rather more like King Lear. I will have such revenges on you both that the world shall... I will do such things. What they are, yet I know not, but they shall be the terrors of the earth. If you really have to promise the terrors of the earth, but you don't yet really know what they are, well then that's not a very strong position in which to be in. And it's certainly not that the, the Teddy Roosevelt speaks softly and carry a big stick. Because this is the last point I want to make about this, this rhetoric. There has been, I think, a rather worrying trend. And this is not something that is just in the last few months. This is in the last few years that we've seen with the West, which is far from speaking softly and carrying a big stick. We have too often been shouting at the Russians very, very loudly and very censoriously, while at best waving a small twig. We need to get back to Teddy Roosevelt. Because the, the, the tough rhetoric does nothing except empower those people in Russia who genuinely believe that there is some kind of Russophobic tendency in, in, in the West. That we react the way we react, not because we have genuine concerns about the way Russia acts at home and on the world stage, and let's be honest, we absolutely do, but just simply because we just have some innate bias against the Russians. So on the one hand, we empower them. But on the other hand, we also empower those people in Russia who essentially think that we are pious hypocrites and weak pious hypocrites above all. That we promise much and deliver little when it comes to making good on our claims of value-based foreign policies. So maybe we should be thinking about castigating the Russians less, but doing more. Just worth a thought. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash Shadows and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. Only, please, 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 please